because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And welcome back to day four of our special coverage of the Democratic National Convention, the virtual convention, which last night featured talks from Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama in a rousing attack on the incumbent president of the United States, and then Kamala Harris. I want to make a bold prediction for tonight after Biden. Biden gives his acceptance speech in Wilmington. If you noticed, Obama gave his talk from uh, Philadelphia, the uh, Constitution Hall nearby Philadelphia. I think you're going to see Obama. And my guess is Michelle there in Wilmington tonight after Biden gives his talk. Yeah, I, I got to say, when I was watching it last night, I was sort of scratching my head saying, what is he doing in Philadelphia? I mean, I get the symbolism, you know, but it just didn't totally make right. sense to me. So I think your theory is probably right. We will hold ourselves accountable tomorrow, if it turns out, tomorrow, yes. if it turns out not to be right. <laughs> uh, the Obama speech was st- extraordinary. You said rousing, not a term that I would necessarily use, you know, when you're giving a speech in a very quiet room with no audience, no one really to rouse there. But it was striking in how tough it was on Trump. I think he's been, you know, holding up, you know, for all these years now and finally un- unloaded uh, with with both barrels. So that was right. pretty the frustration striking. they've been building. Pretty um, striking and- to see. Okay, we've got uh, Senator Chris Coons coming up, and he's going to give a preview of the talk he's going to give tonight, introducing Joe Biden. But before we get to that, we have some really breaking news here. Steve Bannon, the former campaign chairman for Donald Trump, was arrested today and charged with two counts of fraud, along with three others. Now, Bannon, it's worth remembering, uh, succeeded Paul Manafort as the uh, campaign chief. Manafort, of course, was uh, famously uh, indicted and convicted of of fraud uh, in the Mueller investigation. You add that to Michael Cohen, to Roger Stone. Just one more accused felon in the Trump orbit. And uh, I think it's worth noting that in the press release from the Southern District of New York, so this is the bar. Justice Department that has indicted the former chief of Trump's campaign. The uh, postal inspector who brought the case calls Bannon a fraudster. So that this case is a warning to fraudsters. We've got our colleague, Caitlin Dixon, um, here with us. Caitlin actually wrote about this group that Bannon is accused of defrauding. Caitlin, welcome to the Skullduggery and tell us what you know about this Build the Wall Foundation that Bannon and three others uh, were uh, charged today with uh, ripping off. Yeah, thanks for having me. So 
This group was created in 2018 called We Build the Wall. It was a, a crowdfunding campaign through GoFundMe to basically raise money to build a border wall. This is around the time when Congress was, you know, refusing to fund Trump's border wall project. And so these supporters of the president's decided to create their own GoFundMe campaign to pay pay for it. And Bannon, along with the founder and president of the group, a guy named Brian Colfage, and two others have been charged with using the organization to defraud thousands, tens of thousands of donors and using the money that they collected basically for their own personal expenses with the the indictment claims. As I recall, a couple of things about your story. We actually sent you down to the border to be there when they were, I don't know, what, what was it, some kind of a ceremony when they were starting the project. But my recollection is that Colfage uh, had said that he was not going to take one penny of salary, right? That this was, yeah. enti- and, and that originally the idea was they were going to raise some crazy amount of money. I think they were talking about a billion dollars. A billion. And yeah. the money was going to go directly to the government to build the wall. That's not what happened. <laughs> what did happen? No, that is not what happened at all. It, but yeah, exactly. You're right. So Colfage originally said he was going to, his goal was to raise a billion dollars and give the money directly to the government. He did not raise a billion dollars. I think it became very clear early on that that was a unreachable goal and that to give that money directly to the government was not going to be feasible. So instead they they ended up raising $25 million for an independent, I guess, nonprofit that they organized, that they created called We Build the Wall. And they were going to build sections of, of border wall on private property. And so they did the first one over Memorial Day weekend of last year, sort of under the cover of darkness, so to speak. It kind of went up over... Over the holiday, people were shocked to see it there, and, and they and they didn't and get a they didn't get a permit to to build uh, to, to begin construction, any, right? Right. They did it without any any permits from the city. This is in a city called Sunland Park, New Mexico, which is like right next to El Paso on the border of uh, Ciudad Juarez in Mexico. And when I went down there, was they were doing a, a fundraiser basically to raise more money and to show off their new wall. And Steve Bannon was there along with Tommy Fisher, the head of um, you know this, this construction company that Trump has repeatedly touted on Fox News and pushed to get border wall contracts and Trump allies and supporters. And there was when I interviewed Brian Colfage and, and he admitted to me um, that he did not have the proper permits to to build the wall and and was planning to keep going and, and build in other locations. And actually they had built, they used sort of similar tactics to build another section of the wall more recently in um, on the banks of the Rio Grande in Texas. And just like last month, it was reported that that structure was at risk of falling into the river because it was not stable. So they've been skirting regulations and and using intimidation tactics to pressure, you know, local governments and the International Boundary Water Commission. And apparently, according to the indictment, uh, allegedly, you know, using the money they raised from people who really want to see a border wall 
pay for their own personal expenses as they've been charged now. Caitlin, I noticed that Bannon has this podcast and he's had Brian Colfage on a number of times, including last month, in which Colfage on Bannon's podcast talked about how they were working with Homeland Security and that um, the Department of Homeland Security was identifying parts of the border where this privately funded wall could be constructed. Yeah. Did you find any evidence that, that they were at all working with the Department of Homeland Security and that the department was supportive of what these guys were doing? Well, that is something that they, that Colfage at least has, has said from the beginning. He claimed that they had identified, you know, the spaces where they built the locations where they were building private walls through, you know, talking to border agents and, and communication with officials at the Department of Homeland Security. I was able to confirm and reported exclusively in November that the acting Homeland Security Secretary Chad Wolf, during his first official visit to the border, made an unannounced visit to the private border wall that I went to with Steve Bannon and the others in Sunland Park. And really, and, you know, gave a speech there praising the work that they had done. And so it's... Wait a second. That that strikes me as significant. You're saying the acting secretary of Homeland Security was Mm -hmm. praising and endorsing what this group was doing, this group which has now been formally uh, accused of defrauding thousands of donors, presumably the uh, endorsement of that high-ranking a U.S. government official can be used to for fundraising purposes to help draw in more donors who are getting ripped off by these guys, according to the indictment, who are taking the money and using it for their own personal expenses. I don't know. That strikes me is that there's some pretty important questions to ask Homeland Security right now. Absolutely. Yeah, I I was thinking that myself as I was writing up the news that that was going to be my next move was to reach out to them because, yeah, Chad Wolf was there. He paid a visit. And then when asked, you know, whether he supported the independent efforts of this organization, he said, I welcome all that want to be part of the solution. And beyond that, it's not totally clear what the communications have been between DHS officials and the organization, but clearly, you know, there has been some endorsement. And there, of course, there have been some other very prominent Trump supporters who have backed this project, including Eric Prince, the founder of Blackwater Mm -hmm. USA, Chris Kobach, the former Secretary of State in Kansas who ran for the U.S. uh, Senate. And of course, Eric Prince is also the uh, brother of uh, Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos. I'm wondering who else may get caught up in, in all of this. What was their role in boosting this project? Well, they, those, those two people that you just mentioned were uh, on the advisory board of We really? Hall, as well as a number of other people. I'm just looking at the list now. I don't know, you know, to be honest, I don't, Kurt Schilling was another one, Tom Tancredo, Sheriff David Clark Jr. They all served on the advisory board. I'm not sure exactly what that means, but yeah, there's potential for them to be wrapped up in this too. It sounds yeah. like it was the way the the indictment described it and made it seem like the organization was created as like a scheme. 
in the end, they they raised hundreds. Uh, what was it like two hundred million dollars? Twenty five. Twenty five million 25. dollars. Okay, but small donations. So we may be yeah. talking about you know tens of thousands of people who uh, donated to this project. I know the the news just broke, but I am curious how some of those people will react when they hear that their donations were being used to feather the nests of uh, of uh, the people who were asking for the money in the first place. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see uh, the reactions. It's funny because I I was aware that um, some people in Florida, where uh, Colfage is from, had requested an investigation of the group last year after the first wall was built, suggesting that he had not used the the funds that they've raised as promised, but I hadn't really heard much about progress of that investigation. So when I saw the news this morning out of the Southern District of New York, I was I was kind of surprised to see that that's where it was coming from. But the the announcement that came today said that you know the donors who were defrauded, including some residents of, of New York Southern District and and certainly people from all over the country who who gave I think varying amounts of money in hopes that it was going to, you know, pay for the wall. Well, I, I got to say, you know, speaking of these uh, these people who gave money, you know, I think what this is going to raise for a lot of people is that the bigger fraud here is not what's in the four corners of this indictment, but rather Steve Bannon's populism, right? I mean, he is the chief ideologist of the Trump administration and the Trump movement. And this idea for decades that the elites have been taking advantage of working Americans and, you know, exploited them and shuttered their factories and sent their jobs overseas and sent their kids to fight the endless wars, right? And and then in the meantime, and, and pushing for the, the wall as a, as a main pillar of the Trump campaign, and in the meantime, he is allegedly, it has not been proven yet, been raising money uh, for his own personal benefit off of all of this. I mean, come on, right. this is rich. It, it- it, it is it rich. Is, yeah. and, and when you read the indictment, you know, there's these uh, the creation of a shell company and fake invoices to disguise the payments that go to Colfage and to uh, Bannon for personal use. I just want I, I, I said before that uh, Bannon was formally accused today of being a fraudster. So I just want to read, as we close out here, the relevant line here, and this is uh, from the DOJ press release. And by the way, we should note, this is the Bar Justice Department that brought this indictment out of the Southern District a few weeks ago. We were all concerned that Barr was going to squash criminal cases implicating the uh, president and Although his Although he did try to push out the previous he did he pushed out the previous u.s attorney who presumably had this case under his jurisdiction right, so, right. so uh, we on, don't on, know but, whether but, he, he was he was and he uh, wanted and he wanted mm-hmm. to put in the u.s attorney in new in jersey new jersey right you know who's supposed to be a pretty good guy but also you know that was may have been anyway but, you know be that as it may uh the charges were brought and uh, also the u.s postal service inspectors were critically involved uh and here is the quote from the official doj 
press release from the inspector in charge, Philip Bartlett. The defendants allegedly engaged in fraud when they misrepresented the true use of donated funds. As alleged, not only did they lie to donors, they schemed to hide their misappropriation of funds by creating sham invoices and accounts to launder donations and cover up their crimes, showing no regard for the law or the truth. This case should serve as a warning to other fraudsters that no one is above the law, not even a disabled war veteran or a millionaire political strategist. And that is a reference to Steve Bannon. Yes. And that disabled and war veteran is, is Brian Colfitch, right? Is, yeah. is Brian Colfitch. He's, in a, he's in, in a wheelchair, right? Um, yeah, he is a triple amputee Air Force veteran. Right. Wow. It's an amazing uh, story. Amazing, amazing story. story. Caitlin, yeah. I think you should uh, uh, reach out to Homeland Security for the follow-up and see what their uh, role was in Absolutely. endorsing this acu- group of accused fraudsters. Uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. We now have with us Senator Chris Coons of Delaware. Senator, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you. Good to be on with you. We want to talk about the uh, big speech you're going to give tonight about your uh, longtime friend and colleague, Vice President Biden. But before we do, some breaking news today. Steve Bannon was arrested on fraud charges. Any thoughts? (laughs) I literally just heard about this a few moments ago, so I don't know the details of the charges that Steve Bannon's facing. Uh, but frankly, I've thought he was a fraud for a long time. <laughs> okay. Um, you are giving a uh, speech tonight to sort of introduce uh, Biden. And we understand you want to talk about the role of faith in this speech. Tell us about that. Well, Joe Biden is someone who I've seen in moments, both public and private, turn to God in prayer for comfort, for strength, for guidance. Uh, in moments when he's had a remarkable victory, when he's at his highest point, and at moments that are among the lowest points any person or parent can have, I've seen him both personally and in how he connects with others uh, rely on his faith. Joe is someone who's incredibly empathetic. He's lived through grief himself, and it's faith that's allowed him to get back up after life has knocked him down. But I've seen him on rope lines, uh, at church, at the mall, at the grocery store, when folks who are themselves struggling with grief or loss turn to him and he'll stop everything and give them a shoulder to cry on or a partner in prayer. And at this moment, when more than 50 million Americans have at some point this year applied for unemployment, when 170,000 Americans have died often alone, the depth of loss, the concerns, the anxiety of parents, of working families, of millions of Americans need to know that the person they are entrusting to be our next president is someone who has deep empathy, who sees all of us as children of God and as his neighbors, whom he should respect and support and engage with. Um, And last, I also wanna make sure people understand that even though his own Roman Catholic faith strengthens and informs his service, he'll be a president for all Americans. He'll respect all faiths and those uh, who are people of conscience, but who practice no particular faith. Senator, we're going to get back to Joe Biden, but I I, I do want to talk to you a little bit more about this idea of faith informing policy leadership. And you've also written about how this is a that Democrats, that, that people in the Democratic Party have had a hard time sometimes talking about faith. And you had 
you struggled with this at one point in, in 2017 when you were trying to make the decision whether or not to pray for Donald Trump at the National Prayer Breakfast. I thought that was really interesting. You've written about it. Uh, you wrote a piece in the Washington Post about it. Tell us about that process, that struggle, and why you ended up doing it. Well, that same week, President Trump asked me to join him in a difficult trip to Dover, Delaware, uh, for his first dignified transfer. This is when the remains of a fallen American who's died in combat overseas are returned to the United States. And it's often the first time the family is together uh, and is confronting the reality of the death of a loved one. And I was literally standing beside President Trump at the ramp of a C-17 as the flag-draped coffin of a fallen American Navy SEAL who had been killed in Yemen came down that ramp. And you never forget those moments, the impact that it has on a family. And I was at several dignified transfers with both President Obama and Vice President Biden. And it's the moment when the weight of the office is most heavily on someone. It was because of um, that experience uh, and the significance of the National Prayer Breakfast, where there were thousands of people gathered from all faiths from all over the world, that I thought it was important to, to show what is one of the most basic teachings uh, of my faith, which is that you should pray always and for everyone, pray for those in power and responsibility, and pray even for your enemies. There were those in my own party and uh, in politics who questioned or challenged why I would pray for and with President Trump. Um, and I think uh, the simple principle, you should pray for all and pray for your enemies, uh, is an explanation of that. Um, it's not that I thought my personal witness, uh, my persuasion would somehow change uh, Donald Trump's heart. Uh, but if you believe uh, in the idea of an almighty um, who can touch human hearts, uh, then that alone may be the force, the power, the influence that has the ability uh, to open his heart. Um, President Trump and I uh, privately had a, a conversation in which I conveyed to him uh, my sharp disagreement with the Muslim ban that he had just signed um, that same uh, previous week, and that I thought was, was an inappropriate exercise of power to discriminate against one faith. But I didn't feel like it was appropriate to use the moment of the National Prayer Breakfast uh, to publicly challenge him on that issue. I rather thought I would leave it in God's hands. Senator, in purely political terms, uh, there's no question that uh, President Trump has had strong support from the evangelical community and from people who define themselves as people of faith. Is your talk here tonight in part an effort by the Biden campaign to try to reach out to that portion of the electorate and see if you can bring them over to the Democratic camp? So I've had interesting conversations in recent weeks with personal friends who are clergy, who are pastors, one with a Pentecostalist congregation, another with an evangelical congregation, and they disagree with and are uncomfortable with the position of the Democratic Party on two social issues that for now decades have been viewed as defining, quote unquote, the religious issues in an election, abortion and marriage equality. But our conversations have been about how there are other pressing issues confronting and combating racism and the founding sin of our country, slavery, addressing climate change and creation care, making progress on a criminal justice reform that, and frankly, having a humane immigration policy. All of these are issues that speak to evangelicals, uh, to Pentecostalists, to charismatics, um, who are concerned about these issues of justice. 
And the point I've been making in these conversations and that I will emphasize again tonight is that Joe Biden sees these as important issues and his positions on them are informed by his faith. Look, the gospel doesn't have a specific endorsement of one political party or another. It doesn't lay out a political action agenda. And so all of us should be, I think, humble as we try to make our best efforts to apply gospel truths to the current situation and to political choices. But uh, for so long now in this country, there is a sense in your party that the Republican Party um, in particular has has kind of weaponized and politicized uh, religion. And so there is, I think there remains a deep reluctance among Democrats to speak openly about faith in the context of policy or, or, or leadership. So I hear what you're saying. I wonder if you have seen any real progress in terms of getting Democrats to talk more openly about faith in the sort of civic context. Yes, I have. You know, there, there's a dozen friends of mine, colleagues of mine uh, in the Senate who are Democrats, who are progressives, who are known for their uh, championship of progressive causes, but whose foundation, um, the place where those progressive values come from is their childhood education in Christian faith in particular. Uh, Elizabeth Warren, for example, uh, was raised in a very observant uh, Christian home, was a Sunday school teacher at one point, has spoken about it on the campaign trail. I'll give you another example at the risk of uh, delving into a personal relationship. Um, Sherrod Brown of Ohio is a good friend of mine. He hosts in his office a weekly a prayer and reflection group. It's sponsored by a group called Faith and Politics that was led and inspired by Congressman John Lewis, who's uh, training at a Baptist seminary and whose ordination led him uh, to, as he often put it, pray with his feet, uh, to be an activist engaged in making social change. If you look at the arc of American history, some of the most important movements for change, whether it was the labor rights movement or the women's suffrage movement, we just celebrated this week the centennial of the 19th Amendment or the abolition movement or that civil rights movement where John Lewis played such a central role. It was men and women of faith, people who were um, seminarians, clergymen, rabbis, priests, ministers, who were central to being the foot soldiers uh, and the voices of those movements. I was traveling in Ohio a number of years ago with Sherrod, with Senator Brown, and I had the honor of introducing him at an event in Youngstown to a group uh, that knew him well. He's been elected for decades. And I talked about this uh, reflection group, this prayer group uh, that Sherrod and I uh, are a part of and where we meet regularly. And you could see, I could see faces in the audience sort of looking like, what, you know, because this isn't something Sherrod regularly and comfortably talks about, but it is a deep part of who he is. At the next event that we did together in Cleveland, he was the one who offered up, well, yeah, I am, I am a part of this prayer group. You're absolutely right. Starting in the 80s, both politically conservative and theologically conservative Americans became very loud and very engaged and very vocal about how their faith views, their interpretation of a few specific parts of the Bible and the gospel led them to particular positions on social issues. And they have succeeded in having most Americans think of those few issues and those perspectives as how faith voters uh, ought to behave in the polling place. And very few elected Democrats comfortably talk about our faith. I think that's also for the reason that we want to be respectful and welcoming of humanists, of those who are uh, non-theists, um, but who are 
you know, good and ethical and engaged citizens and often share our political views in terms of what is the next path forward, the priority of addressing civil liberties and social justice issues. So I think we have to find our voice again. I think we have to find a way to help people understand the values that inspire and motivate us while also being and speaking respectfully of the range of views on faith, of the range of experiences around religion that are part of the broad Democratic Party family. Senator, we had uh, uh, Congresswoman Debbie Dingell on the podcast yesterday, and she flagged another issue that she says uh, she's concerned Democrats are uncomfortable talking about, and that is the spike in violence in major urban centers right now and the attacks on law enforcement reflected in the defund the police movement. And she said she is worried that this could be the new trade issue in Michigan. She's hearing more and more talk about the need to more vigorously support law enforcement in light of the violence. And she's concerned that Democrats are and the Biden campaign haven't been as proactive in addressing this uh, as they need to be. Do you share her concerns about that? Well, rather than share concerns, let's focus on what Joe Biden said this week at the convention. He specifically spoke to the question of how we should be viewing police and policing in this moment after um, the tragic murder of George Floyd and all the nationwide protests on Black Lives Matter. Joe is clear that he does not support defunding the police. He supports reforming the police, that his view now and his whole life has been that the overwhelming majority of police uh, are decent people who do a tough and an important job and he and, and I and many of us in leadership in the Democratic Party in Delaware and elsewhere have spoken out against violence. Um, all of us should oppose violent crime and all of us should be appreciative of the, the risky and difficult work that law enforcement does. So this is something that uh, as I appear on and listen to you know, Fox News, MSNBC, CNN, there is a, a narrative that Fox News is pushing uh, that there is widespread violence in cities led by Democrats and that we are doing nothing about it. Frankly, that's not true. You can cherry pick some elected officials of my party um, who say things about police and policing that are extreme and, and with which I disagree. What I think is important is to listen to the nominee of our party and his long record of supporting law enforcement, but being clear-eyed about there needing to be reforms that we urgently have to adopt so that we no longer have to watch or witness or endure um, tragic and needless killings of innocent civilians by police, rare though they are. Senator, I know you have to go. Just want to ask one last question. You have a lot in common with uh, Joe Biden, not just that you're both from Delaware, that you both uh, have ridden the Amtrak for a long time and that you occupy his seat. Um, yep. You are known for being one of the uh, Democratic senators who is often willing to cross the aisle and work with your uh, Republican colleagues. Yep. That is something that Joe Biden is famous for. But that kind of politics is not in vogue anymore these days. And so I'm wondering... Tell us how you think Joe Biden as president will be able to work with the other side, even in these highly, highly polarized times that, that we're living in. Well, uh, when Joe was first uh, announcing his candidacy and first running in the primaries, uh, to your point about uh, bipartisanship and solving problems no longer being in vogue, uh, 
uh, lots of my colleagues, uh, lots of commentators, lots of folks in the press said, oh, Joe Biden, he'll never be the nominee. Uh, the Democratic Party base is looking for someone sharper, more aggressive, more by less bipartisan, more partisan. Um, and frankly, I spent six months doing interviews about how, you know, the Twitter fueled base just wants more rage and less compromise. Tonight, Joe Biden uh, will give his acceptance speech as the nominee of the Democratic Party. I was convinced, Joe was convinced, and now we've shown that the base of the Democratic Party wants us to solve real problems that impact their lives. I was on Fox News earlier this morning, uh, and the host wanted to pick a fight about the conduct or the behavior of Trump's children versus Biden's children. And I ended up saying to her, Maria, what I hear from voters and constituents over and over is they want us to focus on their children. <laughs> they want to focus on reopening schools safely. They want to focus on getting through this pandemic. I think Joe Biden knows better than anyone the costs of McConnell's obstructionism. He was the man as vice president who got sent up to the Hill over and over to try and negotiate some resolution um, in the midst of the last great recession in 2009, 2010, and to try and make progress on healthcare. He knows how obstructionist Republicans have been and may well be, but we can't get through this. The structure of our constitution and our Senate requires compromise. We won't get through this in a way that lasts if we only have Democrats voting for the agenda that we try to move through Congress. We are more likely to have a sustained solution to the challenges facing our country, whether racial injustice, recovering the, rebuilding the economy and building it back better, or recovering for, from this pandemic, if we do it in a bipartisan way. Joe will make his best efforts in that direction, so will I, but we're not fools. We're not gonna spend years waiting for some miraculous reversal of obstructionism. We will make progress. We will get this done. Senator, one last quick question. I know you're in Wilmington. I noticed last night former President Obama gave his speech from nearby Philadelphia. Should yep. we expect to see Obama tonight in Wilmington? I have no idea. I haven't seen. I spoke to Joe on Sunday. I haven't seen Joe Biden physically in person in months. And that's partly the point of this virtual convention. Sure, we have to give up the balloon drop and the confetti. What would have been nights filled with, you know, bratwurst and uh, probably a little beer in Milwaukee. Uh, but if that saves lives, that's the right thing. Joe Biden listens to public health experts. He made the tough choice to forego what would have been the most uplifting, inspiring, and frankly, fun convention of his and my lifetime. And instead, here we are in Delaware, digitally and virtually. Thanks for a chance to be on. Okay, okay thanks thank so much, you, Senator, Senator, and uh, good luck tonight.